This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Shirley Malcolm. So, Shirley, don't get up yet. <laughs> um, I don't know if she knows... Uh, if she re- even remembers this, but the first time I laid eyes on Dr. Shirley Malcolm was in 1985 in Nairobi, Kenya, at the UN Conference for Women, where we were scrambling to put our booths up <laughs> to share uh, issues from the U.S. around uh, on women, and you were setting up a technology and science booth and we were all looking for duct tape and staples and pins and you know things that you don't usually carry around in your suitcase when you go over when you go overseas and that was the beginning of a of a professional uh, friendship i our paths have crossed several times over the years but she has been a role model as well as a touchstone for um, many women, many projects, both in the United States and, uh, and internationally, around issues of uh, diversity of faculty in the STEM fields. Uh, she is head of the Directorate for Education and Human Resources Programs at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and this takes her all over the world in terms of her work. She is particularly interested in activities related to um, promoting science and public understanding of science, uh, the role of science and technology in society, as well as diversifying uh, all the science fields. She sits on numerous boards, and I won't go into that because that's in her uh, bio. But I would like to say that uh, something that isn't here, which she may or may not talk about today, is the fact that she co-chairs a committee of the UN on the status of, of women in, um, in other parts of the world as it relates to progress, science, and technology. And I don't know if they've done finished their work, but the recommendations that come out of that report will be significant for pushing forward the whole UN's agenda around women. She is... Um, got her doctorate in ecology from Pennsylvania State, master's in zoology from the University of California, uh, Los Angeles, so she's one of us as well, and a bachelor's degree with distinction from the University of Washington, so she shares something with you, Dallas, in that case. Uh, She holds 15 honorary degrees, and in 2003, she received the Public Welfare Medal of the National Academy of Sciences, the highest award given by that academy. Her title for today is The Importance of Mentoring Women and Minority Faculty at Every Career Stage, a national, and I would dare to presume somewhat international view. Dr. Malcolm. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, for one thing, it's warm. <laughs> I, just got, <laughs> I just got off of a plane quite late last night uh, at the end of a very long journey from Budapest, um, and where we were essentially talking about many of the same issues with regard to women in science, 
uh, in Budapest with uh, with scientists from Italy and Hungary and the whole Mediterranean area, including Algeria and Tun- Tunisia and what have you. And it is like I just move out of one country in conversation and move into another country in conversation, and amazingly, the conversations are very much alike. Uh, but please bear with me. There's a nine-hour time difference. So I have no idea of what time I, it, it is. Uh, I want uh, to thank the organizers uh, for a lot of things. One is for putting this together and looking at this from a system-wide perspective, because quite frankly, I guess being trained as an ecologist, I understand that we have to look at systems. It, 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 you know, a bright spot here or there is fine, but quite frankly, it's all of the, what about the dark spots in between? And so uh, I want to congratulate you on that. I also want to thank you for the readings, which I found to be very helpful, to provide a research base and for the data uh, that helps to put a, a, a solid floor underneath the conversations that have to go on today. But I'm going to talk about this from the perspective of the implications of the things that you've already read. <clears throat> and to try to give a national uh, imperative and a national conversation, how this fits into this broader conversation. Um, I served for four and a half years on the National Science Board and for two terms during President Clinton's uh, administration on uh, PCAST, the President's uh, Com- uh, Committee of Advisors on Science and Technology. And from, th- from that vantage point, the world looks really clear. You know what it is that you want to accomplish. You know that you put resources behind it, and you assume that good things will happen. Well, the minute that you get onto an indiv- into an individual department, or onto an individual campus, you know it's not that easy. And that a lot of the policies that basically come from a national perspective, that the devil is in the details about how those things get implemented. And I would say that the biggest challenge that you will face in any of this is implementation. So I'm starting at the, at the therefores. The biggest challenge is going to be implementation. The other thing that I I want to raise with you is this question, and I want you to keep thinking about this. If mentoring is the solution, what is the problem? Think about that. If mentoring is the solution, what is the problem? And I want to go back now to this national perspective so that we can, can get to that point of maybe being able to focus on that particular question. Let's go back to first principles uh, in science policy in the United States. The United States has chosen to, do, to actually do research in a, and support research in a very different way. Other places in the world, they'll set up research institutes or what have you, and there is some distance between the educational process and the research process. In the United States, that's not the case. The case here is that we deliberately put the research enterprise, especially the fundamental, the basic research enterprise, inside of the university. Why? 
there is this belief, and I think it has been borne out over time, that the integration of research and education, the way that much of our research is done here in the U.S., and this placement of the university as the focal point gives us multiple value. For one thing, we promote knowledge generation, knowledge production, within the context of the development of the next generation of talent for producing, applying, communicating, translating, extending, and connecting that knowledge. So you get these kind of win-win things going on. You're not just looking at bringing in technicians who can help to run machinery or to conduct experiments. You are developing minds who can extend the work that is being done. So this is a, this is a choice that has been made in the United States. So I ask the next question. That is... When knowledge is supported by public investment and used for public good, how does public good and how does need get defined? Who decides what the agenda should be? Who decides what the priorities should be? If the university and the faculty are the mechanism, then why do you have to have diversity within the faculty? Without diversity within the faculty, what do you get that you wouldn't get, or what do you lose? in a very different faculty. So inclusion and exclusion give you different results. You wouldn't end up in the same place necessarily. You may end up in the same place with regard to a particular experiment, but you wouldn't necessarily end up in the same place with regard to deciding what is the important next thing to do. The way that we frame this I think it's really very important. As I move around the rest of the world and see the things that are really burning challenges in the rest of the world, the questions become really very clear. Food security. Much of the world is basically just days away from starvation. Water. Sustainable, sustainability. Clean water, I mean, is a major issue. It's an issue here, but it's really an issue when you're looking at regions such as, as Egypt, where there is a green strip surrounded by brown. And you think about the conflicts that arise related to water and the availability of water. The conflicts around oil are nothing compared to the conflicts that would emerge around water. You have options in terms of energy. I don't think we have many options in terms of water. And so as we began to look at all of these kind of global challenges, the question becomes, how do we frame a research agenda? 
And we we frame it, if we're lucky, with the broad sweep of minds that can be applied to say, this is important, this needs work, and this is where I will put my energy and invest my knowledge production and my production of, of, of products. So the, the, we've seen the current shape, the current face of the faculty. And the question is, what hasn't it given us? And I think back on the emergence of the work on uh, women's health. Now, the interesting thing with, with regard to the emergence on women's health, we all take that for granted now. There is an Office of Research on Women's Health. There are people who are doing work and research on women's health. Interestingly, I want you to remember how that came about. That was not from the researchers saying, we need to focus on this because it's important. That came about politically. And I think that we began to understand that this question about when, how much, and where to invest is only partly a conversation among the people like ourselves. It is in part a political conversation. It was the policy community who pushed on the issue of women's health. Now, some of us have, have embraced that over time. And in that embracing, we began to understand some fundamental issues, such as there is, really is no such thing as males necessarily being equivalent to females in, women, in clinical trials. The environment that I present for a drug regimen is a very different environment than is presented for this man. The way that a heart attack would manifest in me is not necessarily the way that it is manifest in the male or the way that it is often taught now, even today, to our medical students about how you can tell the symptoms of a heart attack. So did we need an initiative around women's health? We probably did, because at the time we were not able to understand that we needed to kind of disaggregate our thinking with regard to this. It came from the policy community, yes. But now the question is, we've got to own it. And in owning it, we need to continue to look at the research environments that are available, wherein... If you work in that area, you are not marginalized or penalized and that that carries as much value and as much prestige as working in some other area. Because that's the other side of it. Oftentimes when people do work around issues that relate to marginalized groups, their research is seen as lesser and their research is marginalized. When I was a student at the University of Washington, brand new student, freshman in chemistry. I almost failed chemistry lab. I'm willing to admit it. Um, I had just come from uh, my all-black high school in Birmingham, Alabama, 
This was 1963. Um, chemistry in Birmingham was a whole different kind, a chemistry class was a whole different thing because there were different amounts of resources that were spent on the education of black kids and white kids, and they didn't mind telling you. I mean, it was very public. They would publish these little things about how much they spent on who, and you knew that you were on the lower side of that, and so there it was. But when I got to the University of Washington, um, all of a sudden I was confronted with equipment I, I had never seen before. So I'm supposed to be able to manage all of that at the same time that I'm doing all these other things. So on my first laboratory exam, this is total true confession, on my first laboratory exam, I got a 9 out of 20. On my second laboratory exam, I got a 7 out of 20. I said, "Uh uh-oh, this is not going in the right direction. I better go see somebody. Okay. And that was a hard decision to make because I'd always been an independent kind of a person and I figured I could just kind of, I'd just gut it out, you know. I'd just figure it out for myself. And I knew that I needed to see someone and go and talk about the problems that I was having in trying to manage all of this. And it was, a, as I said, it's a hard decision to make. Why? Given my background, if I had gone to a white professor and said, I'm having problems, I expected that the reaction would be, well, this may just be beyond you, and maybe you should consider changing your major. Or I also had this feeling, I'm being really candid here, that they didn't expect me to be very bright anyway, And so all I would be doing is, you know, basically fulfilling what they expected and showing them. There happened to be one African-American TA in the entire department, and he was my lab teacher. And so I went to Ken's office, and I said, I'm not dumb. I'm underprepared. I walk in there, and I have no idea of what I'm doing. So he talked to me for a while, and he realized that I probably wasn't dumb. And he kind of, when we'd go into lab, he'd kind of, you know, in a very quiet way, uh, help me with the instrumentation so that I would not be embarrassed. Because, you know, you, there's the issue, too, of losing face and, and being embarrassed and having the other students think that you're, you're dumb. And that presents his own kind of issues. And uh, the third exam, I got an 18 out of 20, and he was happier than I was. (laughs) And needless to say, I passed the class. I got a B. I was very happy for the B. Uh, I passed the class. If I had not, I would not be here today. That's the bottom line. I would not be here today. Now, Why did I tell you that story? I could say to him what I could not say to others. And he could offer perspective to others that I think that they otherwise could not get. Having, it makes a difference to have the availability of diverse faculty to the students we educate. And the the story up here is that 
you are incredibly diverse and you're going to keep getting diverse. And the faculty has to start looking like the students, a little bit more like the students, because it's really hard to make that step as a student when you know that you can do it, but that one hint of discouragement could just take you over the edge. You know, it's a, it's a tough kind of a, a business, yep. being a student. You don't know anything. Fortunately, you know you don't know anything. And so you don't kind of end up in a bad space. But I want to raise this issue about the need for having the diversity. And I wanted to start with the issue of the need before I went on to the issue of the question of mentoring. Because somehow we have to move from need, national imperative, from need to actualization on our campuses. So the issue is that how do we get there? Well, it's a process. It's always a process. First, we have to have people who are, well, maybe I should say, we really have to produce people that we would want to hire. I know that sounds strange, but quite frankly, I I don't think that the hiring process actually starts at recruitment. I think the hiring process starts at preparation. We have to produce the kind of people that we would want as our colleagues, and that's the then and that we would respect as our colleagues. And I think that is a a fundamental issue that we oftentimes um, that we don't pay attention to, and that means that we have to produce the kind of people and mentor them in the way that, in fact, that that can happen. So. Uh, I, I am going to, to wind this up because I think that I would rather have the opportunity to have conversation. At every stage, at all points of, tra- of transition, I guess we have this need for GPS for careers, kind of a career positioning system. Um, while we're getting trained, we need the opportunities to present We need opportunities to publish. We need guidance to help us do those things well, to improve, to experience community, to become socialized, to learn the language in mores, the expectations and major challenges of a field, the big problems, the access to ideas, people, and equipment that one needs. With getting hired, we have the the issue of recruitment, of getting set up, of negotiating, uh, and of even knowing the process by which negotiation takes place or even whether something is negotiable. And that differs from place to place. In some cases, people are expected to negotiate, and in other cases... If you come talking about negotiating something, you know, it's like, oh, okay, we can move on. There is the issue of getting supported, the, the, getting that grant, 
navigating the department, navigating the field, and there are major field differences, and I'm glad that this issue was pointed out uh, about how different the life sciences uh, happen to be than uh, many of the physical sciences. And I would uh, urge you to look, if possible, at the fact that the physical sciences are within that broad context very different. You have, on the one hand, chemistry, which has upwards of about a third of the PhDs going to women, and physics, which is like 18%. But then you have another phenomenon where, with physics, they at least are hiring at the percentage that women are in the field, and that is not the case in chemistry. Even though you have a third of them there being coming out with PhDs, and we've had those numbers for a while now, if you look at the faculties of the research universities, that is not what you see. And so understanding the field differences and the structures and the challenges that we have is really important. We are having real challenges right now with regard to the federal budget. So when we used to use this benchmark of, you know, you get an R01, and that's kind of a hallmark of saying that you can be promoted to the next level and you kind of can't until you do, the chances of getting an R01 are, it's like a lottery. You almost have a better chance. And without, and many of these grants are going to experienced investigators. And so you're looking at success rates of like 15%. So you have these kinds of challenges of the old benchmarks and the new reality, and that's kind of a, another piece that we have. Much more of the research now is interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary even, and so we see emergence of centers, but people are attached to departments. So we have all of these, this kind of crazy stuff going on with regard to the changing landscape of higher education at the same time that we have these quote-unquote new entrants into the faculty that we're expected to somehow be able to bring in, socialize, and help them be successful. Getting recognized. We, have continue, we continue to have the problem that different, the same behaviors elicit different responses depending on who makes the behavior. What might be a, a person who is aggressive and what have you with regard to their career might be seen to be pushy if, a, if it's a woman who does it or someone who is basically stepping outside of their bounds if a minority faculty does it. We still have this reality. Getting opportunities, getting promoted, how many times... I cannot tell you how many times well, I'll ask for names of people to be recommended um, for the science board or something like this. I served on the nominating committee of the board twice. And uh, I get the same old names if, in fact, I don't. And then I just basically say, oh, I get it. And then I ask my minority and female friends, and sometimes I have to tell them, I'm talking about I'd like some diversity. Because it's just a tendency that we have. 
If any of you read the, the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences study that talked about how both men and women actually look in a, in a blinded situation with regard to resumes, how they actually attach value depending on whether it's a male or female name. I mean, something is wrong with that. But that's the reality. And then the question of getting power, gaining power and influence. Within, for example, being able to be a department chair, but then beyond the institution, serving on academy committees, serving on policy-making bodies within the state or the, or the nation. So what diverse faculty bring to the department and institution beyond? There's a research role. Shaping the research priorities, what is important, what bringing value from diverse inputs. And there is a body of literature which is emerging now that talks about the role of diversity in innovation. The work that by Scott Page, uh, some of the work that Joe DeSimone is putting forward, where, he, where they're basically using the diversity to drive the innovation process. The teaching role of faculty. As I said, we need more availability of students for people who look like the students. So we finally get to the issue of mentoring. I know you think it took me a long time to get there. (laughs) But I'm trying to get at that first question. And that is, if mentoring is the solution, then what's the problem? And I think that by now you understand that faculty have a unique role, and not just within the university, in terms of their work to set and articulate research priorities, to conduct meaningful research that is of, that is of importance and meets national and global needs, that the teaching responsibilities and the service responsibilities that they have, and bringing one to a point where they are prepared to lead and that they are guided and mentored toward a, a process, within a process that helps them carry out their, those different roles, is critical. We are beginning to understand that, it is, that we shouldn't think about a mentor, We should think about multiple mentors. Just as in marriage, there is no way that one person can fulfill every need that you might happen to have. In mentoring, there is no way that one person can fulfill all the needs that you have. Then there are these other questions. Number one, are there aspects of mentoring that you're expecting to take the place of structural change? If so, get over that. (laughs) Because that's a one-on-one, and you still leave the system untouched. Okay? So I think that it is important at some point in your conversation to talk about what things need to be dealt with structurally and then what other things it is most reasonable to expect that mentoring will provide you. And you need to separate those clearly because otherwise the processes will remain in place to keep things in the same way and we will end up in a situation where we're trying to fix all of us 
rather than fix the system. And that's a warning. We've been here, done that before. And that is a warning. And you have the opportunity to think different, differently about it. It cannot replace the need for structural change. It can help you survive until you get structural change. Mentoring. Not everyone is good at it. The question that I have is, can it be taught? And I think that is a question. Can it be taught? Are there ways that you can provide people with not just the information but the skill set that would actually be needed? Helping them to uncover biases or other kinds of things that may get in the way of the way that they might mentor one group versus another. Just because one is a member of the affected group does not mean one will be a champion and watchful for members of that group. Don't just expect because someone is a woman that she can be a good mentor to women. Some of the worst mentors to women have been women that I've seen. Because it is do it my way. That's not what mentoring is about. Mentoring is about really more about asking questions and helping people to really reflect on their own situation and the choices that they want to ask. When they get to the point where they know what it is that they need, then you can begin to provide this idea of options about which way they want to go. And on the other hand, just because one is not a member of the affected group does not mean that one cannot be an effective mentor for women and minorities. Of necessity, my mentors were white males. And I have had some wonderful mentors. But those mentors got me, if you understand what I mean. They knew the background that I came from, and they didn't just make assumptions about who I was and what I was capable of doing without really engaging with all of who I was. As I'm a, I am, as all of you, very layered people. You bring your culture, you bring your perspectives. You aren't just chemists or biologists. You are people who are tied to your communities and to your families and to other kinds of things. And it is a need holistically to understand that in order to really be effective. But we know that there are issues that are out there. For example, we've seen the research on uh, NIH research for African-American researchers. Uh, I am bothered by the fact that, that those data are not broken out by sex. Because, quite frankly, it could be an African-American woman issue rather than an African-American issue. And oftentimes, the issues related to, to women of color just basically get lost. They get lost in discussions of women, and they get lost in discussions of people of color. And somehow, we've got to figure out how to untangle all of this. <clears throat> you know, when little kids are little... They have very poor sense of time and distance. And if you've ever had one of them in the car, 
the question will invariably come up. Are we there yet? And I guess I'd ask us that question. Are we there yet? We can't answer that question unless we know where there is. What is the there that we're trying to, that we're trying to seek? Nancy Hopkins, you know, when she, when the study was done at MIT and it was revealed that there were all these disparities with regard to the senior most women, and there were, there was corrective action that was taken and everybody thought the problem was fixed. And then you did the study a few years later and nothing had changed in the time between the first study and the second study. No increases, no nothing. Okay, and that is a story of the importance of vigilance or things don't always stay fixed. And quite frankly, this was an issue of where it was dependent on an individual or several individuals to do the fixing as opposed to depending on the system and the processes to be fixed. Unless you fix the processes that give you these end results, it will not stay, which is one of the critical reasons that I am a fan of the advanced grant, of this program, advanced program, because it gets to the policies, to the structures themselves. And until we can do that, then we can't really deal with these issues. If somebody leaves, somebody changed position, you're right back where you started. It also helps. Mentoring has the capacity to help us move to a different place, not only in terms of individuals, but also in terms of our institutions, our climates. That was the reason I liked that last one there. Uh, how many of you know what the Rooney Rule is? Okay. The Rooney Rule is in football, in the NFL. Uh, and it was advanced by an owner, uh, Mr. Rooney, who essentially said that he didn't understand how you could have so many players of color and so few coaches of color. And so the Rooney rule was you can't hire unless you interview some of the available people of color who are out there and available. And I think people balked at the first time. And then you started seeing people emerge into defensive coordinator positions or offensive coordinator positions and then to head coaching positions. You know, and then all of a sudden we ended up with the Super Bowl where both coaches were African-American. Now, there was no affirmative action in the sense of we hired someone who was not prepared. There was affirmative action in the sense of we looked at people we had overlooked. Institutional change, bringing about these kinds of cultural differences. Let's be careful about making assumptions about the nature of the barriers that we face. I remember a book that was put out many, many years ago for a was a hand up. I don't know if you remember. One of the things about being around for so long is that I've seen these books. Um, and it was about mentoring. 
And it was a, a bunch of stories. It was a collection of stories. Um, we know that this has been a problem, that this has been a real challenge. And there are other challenges that we're looking at as well. Career life balance is a challenge. It's, it's a challenge for everyone, but it ends up being more of a challenge for the women. Um, you end up with a place like STEM, which was organized by men for men. It was organized at a different time when there were stay-at-home wives who did the typing, the editing, uh, whatever the other work was to basically advance the husband's career. And that's not what we have now. And quite frankly, there are many millennial men who don't want any part of any of that. They want also to be able to interact with their kids when they're small. They also want a balance within their lives. And I think that, therefore, this argues, again, for structural change, for structural change that can go on. The Loose Foundation, when they uh, set up their program for women, what did they do? I thought that was the most interesting thing. I was a part of those early discussions about what was needed. And what they did was they provided resources flexible resources that could be used wherever they might be needed. The NSF has changed in terms of some of its grants management issues about holding, you know, you don't have to just go on and spend, 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 spend. If you have a family, if you are in family formation process, you can, you know, stay, stop out. You can do other kinds of things. It, we are all trying to, at the national level, offer strategies that can be applied locally inside of the university to make a difference so that we can get the talent we need for the national imperative that we all feel about the role of STEM in our lives. But quite frankly, just offering that does not mean it's going to happen. The rubber meets the road inside of the institutions inside of the departments. And that's why what you're doing here and these conversations are so important. Thank you. Okay. I know that I ran over in my presentation part, but we started a little bit late. Okay, so... Let me uh, ask for questions, and those people in the room who know me well know that straight questions get straight answers. Katie Alveston from Berkeley. Um, one question that I have is that many of us had wonderful mentors from diverse faculty, but diverse faculty themselves don't always know their ways around the informal networks because right. they were excluded from them. So what resources are available for the, those of us who want to be good mentors but may not know all of what we need to know to be good mentors, to do these things? Uh, I think we have to uh, be very candid with uh, people that you – uh, think of as good mentors and ask them to talk very explicitly about what they do. Um, and they don't necessarily have to be people who are just in your institution. There are a number of mentoring programs, I mean mentoring awards and recognitions now that can begin to identify people from someplace else who have done a good job at mentoring and just be very upfront with regard to what it is that you want to know. 
It, it, this is, you're not born knowing how to do this, okay? That comes with time. By now, at age 66, I've probably seen as much as I'm going to see of the problems that people can have and bring. You know, the, the one thing that I'd say, though, the guy who stole the truck and was escaping from zombies, that's new to me. <laughs> but in just about any other case, after a certain point, those individuals would likely be able to help guide you about what, what would actually work. So feel free. Call them up. Email them. People like that tend to be very open. Juan. Uh, Juan Mesa, uh, UC Merced. Uh, really nice talk, Shirley. Um, I just came back from a um, committee of visitors uh, panel that I was on at NSF, and we had a rather interesting discussion. And it centered around the fact that NSF was doing so much to try to bring more diversity into panels, researchers, PIs, and things like that. But then the discussion turned around it, that they were doing such a great job that all of the panels had good representation of women, underrepresented minority, to the point that, well, it was good, but it was the same set of people right. over and over right. and over again. Right. So, so the discussion was interesting because it was coming from our groups saying, thank you very much, we really like this, but is there some way to not get so much of the burden on this group here. One of the things that I would, that I would urge would be candid discussions and identifying younger researchers who, are, who would have the skills to be able to do that, mm -hmm. but it would, they would gain a lot. NSF would gain, the younger researchers would gain uh, in terms of being able to do that as well. Now, I understand exactly where you're coming from. So the question then was going to be, what advice would you give to the younger faculty from underrepresented groups and for women on how to balance, you know, we all want to help out. Right. We really want to do this at the same time. It takes a terrible toll yeah, on the but folks the thing that are doing is research. That don't, how, what, don't, what advice would you give them? Don't turn down the opportunity to review proposals. You can turn down some other things, but don't do that. Now, why? Number one, it gives you insight as to what is fundable. It's a great training ground. Number two, it connects you to the program officer. And the program officer can kind of begin to get a sense of who you are. And I think number three, it connects you to other researchers. Okay, at some point, your proposal is going to come before those people. And if they know you and they've had an opportunity to see how you think, you may have a slightly different outcome than if they don't. <laughs> I mean, that's my seven cents on that. Manuela Martins Green, I'm here from UCR. I'm a faculty of, uh, in the Department of Cell Biology and Neuroscience. So I, first of all, want to thank you very much for an inspirational talk and for being so frank. You talked about the system, changing the system, and we often talk about upper administration and deans. And, but I actually think, as you mentioned, the departments are very important, especially the department chairs. And I would go so far as to say that inside the department there should be a faculty member who is really uh, engaged in uh, making sure that you know we are we are following what we talk about, and in particular to making sure that those junior faculty are actually being advised and uh, followed through. Because as you said, 
in your chemistry class was not about you being dumb. It was about you being ill-prepared, and that is what many times tramples people. Yeah. So, you know, I, my issue, I absolutely agree with you mm-hmm. that, that the department is where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I hesitate, however, around the issue of one individual. One individual becomes a target. Uh, maybe. Okay. Uh, multiple individuals taking that on, it becomes a lot easier yes. to, Ma- to, yeah. to make maybe, that point. Maybe that's, that's... Chairs have to be held accountable. That is number one, yeah. <laughs> okay. That's number one. Yeah. Chairs have to be held accountable. And I think that the problem is the failure to actually enforce the policies that we have on the books. Right. right. If we don't, if we are seeing a mass exodus of people Mm -hmm. from a department, you know, they were a major yesterday and they're not a major tomorrow. Whose fault is that? You know, a lot of people talk about attrition. I like to talk about failure to retain. Those are different ways of looking at it. One is that somebody walked. The other is that somebody failed to do that some that somebody failed to keep them there or mm-hmm. even actively pushed them out. And I do think that the that the the whole question about accountability and holding people uh, accountable is a is a realistic one. So can I ask a quick question? Yeah. So you also mentioned that you know sometimes people who are assertive and forward speaking get actually mislabeled. Yes. So could you give some advice to those people who are in that category that they might help? <laughs> Yes, I'll give you some advice on that. Don't stop being who you are. I mean, I, I think that is a very bad thing to hold back because, no, I mean, look, you can tone it down, maybe. You can inject humor and get a long way with humor. You say exactly what you mean to say. Okay, I actually have a, a funny story of a colleague on the National Science Board who one time said, well, what's this diversity stuff all about? What's it good for anyway? And I said, well, without it, species die out. <laughs> I made my point. I sounded really, you know, like just so humble. I was answering his question. His question was rhetorical. I answered it anyway. You can't really, you have to be who you are. I mean, otherwise you will be terribly, terribly dissatisfied. But one of the things, and and I'll just say this, within the advanced system of projects, one of the things some of my colleagues found out is that uh, oftentimes the chairs don't know what they're doing. (laughs) And that, in fact, they need chairs training. You don't just, you're not just born knowing how to be a good chair. And, you, and it isn't just around issues of diversity where they may need that training. And what some of them have actually done is they've offered chairs training, okay? And it included these issues, but it wasn't just about these issues. 
So, and the chairs helped to organize the topics, and therefore they were basically responsive to the needs of the chairs. So if they're put in the larger context, because that's what I'm trying to talk with you now about. Mentoring is a, is, has to be situated within a larger context of what it is that you are trying to accomplish on behalf of an institution, a department, a field, or whatever. And that don't expect that people just come here knowing how to do this. Hi, good morning. Um, my name is Amani Nurujita. I'm from UC Berkeley from the School of Public Health. And thank you very much for your presentation and also for your candidness. And I, in particular, want to comment on your recommendation that we work at a system level. And I guess my comment slash question, and this might be more appropriate for fuller discussion this afternoon, is that when you are working in a system where there is unconscious bias related to a position of privilege, which blocks people from being able to understand and appreciate the needs of minority faculty, and this may also be the case for women, then what do you do? And I'm asking this question because there are those of us who are, and I'm tenured, but recently tenured, so I still consider myself to be fairly junior. And am, thank no, you. No, you're tenured. But my point in saying that is that I, I want to become full professor and I want to move up the ladder, which means that I need my more senior faculty colleagues to continue to vote in a positive way on my case. Have they articulated what it is that is expected to get to a senior level? Yes, and I can do what I need to do. I can do what I need to do. I have what I need to get it done. However, my, my point is that there are those of us who are in those positions who are very concerned about this unconscious bias in our department. And we're kind of working behind the scenes, but, a little, but trying to figure out how do we go up against a system when the system is unconscious and if it's unconscious, we could be seen as being hostile. So then there's you a fear for us about how do we work within the system. What out, so we're having conversations about, okay, we need to identify white men to work with us. Because if they say it, they'll be seen differently than us. And I can say, well, I want to be myself, but there are going to be repercussions repercussions for me being myself. No, there won't be repercussions for you being yourself. You just basically be yourself and have people who appreciate the self that you are. Because you don't want to work with other people anyway. <laughs> okay? You. Because Thank there's you. an issue. They're going to, at, at some point, you're going to get to the issue of credit sharing. And you don't want to work with someone who takes you for granted when you get to that point. Because whose work it was is going to come up. I, all I'm saying is think your way through the entire piece. Sometimes it's a lot easier to bring in someone from the public health community outside of your institution. For example, as speakers or who, who's well-respected. But they're articulating, uh, they, they're talking about an issue that has a minority or female focus where you can, in fact, you can affirm the value of that focus and therefore the, how fortunate the, the school is that they, in fact, have the diversity to be able to deal with issues such as this. I mean, and I, and I do think that there are people who can help who are beyond your institution but who are very well known, thought of, respected. Okay, as 
within public health. I mean, I can, I will talk to you later. I will name you a person. I want you to, to get to know him. He's a Nobel laureate. He will, so I doubt very seriously that they will balk on that one. Okay, I, I'm Cindy Larive. I'm the chemistry department chair here at UC Riverside. Yay! And I would like to bring up a, an issue that I think touches on our mentoring of graduate students and postdocs, but also on the hiring process, and that is grappling with the pedigree, which yes. chemists seem to be particularly obsessed yes, with. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And, and you know... Um, but, you know, there are people from those, there are women and minorities from those institutions, too. Those highly pedigreed institutions. What do they do then? I the other piece is that, um, to be very candid with you, people often make assumptions about what the pedigree carries with it. Uh, I always ask people, I said, you, you, uh, you, you've heard of Shirley Tillman? Okay. You know where she got her PhD? Huh? Temple. Temple. Not necessarily your tier one institution. There are a lot of people who are out there, but oftentimes they don't know that it's more about who you are than where you finished. And I and so uh, it's an education process that that goes on, um, I just hope you just still grapple with it. Because I'm, I, I will tell you that I, will, I can send you candidates from highly pedigreed institutions, but who are diverse, okay? But the question is, then what happens to them? Right, so I think there are two issues. One issue is, Mentoring our graduate students to do a postdoc at, a, at an institution yes. that will grant them the yes, pedigree. I agree with you. Uh, the other issue is uh, trying to educate our colleagues in that the pedigree should not be really the deciding issue about who gets interviewed. That I have found to be a little bit more challenging, but, you know, we can make progress, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. We must. We must. And I thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.